0: Well, hello, and welcome back. My name is Stephanie Safarian, and you're listening to episode 435 of Sustainable Minimalist. This is a show about intentional and eco-friendly living, and on today's show, I have a down and dirty intentional living episode for you today, we're talking pearls of wisdom. So, usually it takes a good amount of decades to become wise. Not today, my friends. Today, my guest is dropping the truth bombs on us. She has six pearls of wisdom to impart. They are for working mothers, stay-at-home mothers, non-mothers, and everybody in between. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Kagan Arleo. She is the author of the new book titled First Eat Your Frog and Other Pearls for Professional Working Mothers. Elizabeth, so excited to speak with you and glean your wisdom today. How are you?
1: I'm good. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be on your podcast.
0: Well, we're here today to talk about your book. It's out now. But the title, I want to start with the title First Eat Your Frog. I'm assuming this is coming from that infamous Mark Twain quote. But if not, please tell me, what does it mean? First Eat Your Frog? Absolutely. You are correct.
1: This comes from a quotation attributed to Mark Twain who said, If it's your job to eat a frog, it's best to eat it first thing in the morning. And if it's your job to eat two frogs, it's best to eat the larger one first. And I have had this quotation hanging on my office wall for years, because it reminds me to do the most important thing as soon as possible, as early as possible in the day, week, month, or whatever time period I'm dealing.
0: How does that quote, though, which by the way, I also love as well. And it's really helped me prioritize my own time. Like, get done the thing that you're most dreading first is how I interpret it. But how does the quote, in your view, relate to the struggles of mothers?
1: Absolutely. I think it's so important and it's helpful for women in two ways. One, to quote the old Annie movie, come what may, with the rest of the day, the most important thing has been taken care of. So it sets yourself up for success. And number two, I think it also lessens the mental load, whereby the mental load is you know, defined as all those things you have floating around in your head, the list of the things you need to do for yourself, your dependents, and all the organization. By taking care of the most important thing first, you don't have to spend your mental energy worrying about it you can get the thing done and then direct that energy that would have otherwise been directed towards worrying about it elsewhere. So the sort of intersection of the personal and the professional example I like to give is that I'm a practicing radiologist. I subspecialize in women's imaging. So the recommendation, and I'm over 40 years old, so the recommendation for, for women of average risk for breast cancer from the American College of Radiology and Society of Breast Imaging is for annual screening mammography, starting at age 40, and continuing for as long as a woman is in good health. And yet screening can be associated with anxiety, even for a breast imager such as myself. I try to eat my frog by scheduling my screening mammogram as early as possible in the month, day, week that I'm having it done to set myself up for success by taking care of myself physically and also definitely lessens the mental load. I don't have to worry about all week worrying about getting that done. I, Monday morning at 8
0: a.m. is the best thing. Mm. All right. So first, eat your frog. Schedule that thing that's stressing you out. First thing on your calendar on the day, if you have something to do that you're not looking forward to, just get it done first so that you can go about your day. I'm on board with eating your frog first. And if you have two frogs to eat, eat the bigger one first, of course. I want to talk about your second pearl of wisdom, which is to think about your time, not in a 24-hour day, but in a 168 hour week. Oh my goodness. I can't even get my 24 hour days set up correctly. But now I am supposed to think about a 168 hour week. Give me the details, Elizabeth.
1: This is an idea that I first learned about from Laura Vanderkam, who's a writer, speaker and a mother of five. And the fact of the math is that we all have the same 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, equaling 168 hours. So The equation is even if you work 50 hours a week, which is more than many people, and you sleep 56 hours a week, which would be eight hours a night, seven days a week, which sounds perfectly delicious to most mothers, the fact of the matter is you still have 62 hours after work and sleep for yourself, for your family, for your friends and your community. I I think it's very helpful because it, it lessens the pressure. Whereas you can't have it all or do it all within 24 hours, when you look at time in a more elongated 168-hour way, you do see that there is time for your priorities, whatever you may they may be. And being intentional about those
0: priorities, y- you can slot them in and have time for them. So let me just ask the clarifying question there. If you're looking at not 24-hour days, but 168-hour days weeks. How then would you suggest a listener to this show best split up their time? 168 hours sounds like an awful lot, but still the free hours are often coming at times when we're exhausted or when our kids are having an issue that we need to take care of. So I totally hear your point of like, don't look at it as a finite 24 hours, look at 168. But the moments of free time may not be Concurrent, there might be other things that pop up. So, like, how does looking at the time as in the 168 frame give us more time?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Basically, once a semester or, or any time that I'm feeling overwhelmed with all the things that I need and want to do, I'll open up like expre- Excel spreadsheet and I'll you know, put the days of the week across the top and the hours of the day, and I'll just block out. You know, the essentials. I start with sleep. I block out 11 p.m. to 7 a.m., eight hours a day. Do I always get eight hours a day sleep? No, but I gray it out because without sleep, nothing else can happen to the best of its ability. So there grays out a whole section of my Excel spreadsheet that I'll gray out my clinical hours because when I'm taking care of patients, I want to be monotasking. I only want to be focused on taking care of my patients. And I'll also put in time for my other work responsibilities, research, education, et cetera. And then it gets a little bit more colorful. I have three girls. They're ages 15, 12, and 7. And they all have their own individual color codes to organize things in the household and on my spreadsheet. And so I can see, I can slot in one-on-one time with them, each one each day, because that time is there. And I can slot in exercise is very important to my physical and mental health. And I don't always get to exercise an hour every day, but I do put it on the calendar because if it's on the calendar, it's more likely to happen. And even after I slot in all the things that I need to take care of and my family and the things that I want to do for myself, there's still a lot of white space. And I like to keep it white and keep it minimal and really just put my priorities on because as you said, you never know what life is going to uh, throw you, and you want to be able to be uh, flexible and spontaneous too, at the same time knowing that you've taken care of your most basic responsibilities and priorities. So sometimes seeing it visually, at least for me as a radiologist or other visual people, can be, can be very helpful and lessen the pressure. Mm.
0: I definitely hear your point there that When we're making visual our limited and finite time, there might be some white space that makes itself apparent. What would you say, though, to listeners who are hearing our conversation right now and they say, oh, no, (laughs) there is absolutely likely to be no white space in my calendar. What would you say to them?
1: I would say... I highly recommend a new uh, widget that I put on my phone, the screen app. It shall show you where a lot of that white spice might be going all the time that we're on our screens disappearing into different buckets. And I am looking at my all my different screen time and how I use it because I think that a lot of us are not aware of where the time goes. And before we can actively choose to do with time what we think is the highest and best use of our time, we have to know where it's going. So I think the exercise of either mapping out what you'd like your ideal time to be and or tracking it so you know where your time is, you may see where your time is going and reflect on whether it's best if you see your time and or maybe you want to free yourself up for some more white space or you want to just decide I'm having an hour of like mindless relaxation where I'm going to scroll, but I'm going to scroll for one hour and not four and then three more hours of white space appear.
0: I'm so glad you brought that up, Elizabeth, because I had a guest on the show and she said, wear a physical watch, like a dumb watch, not a smart watch, just a dumb watch. Because so many of us today, we're carrying around our phones and we're using the phone to be as the watch, as the time checker. However, how often is it (laughs) like that we look at our phone and we just only look at the time. Most often we look at the time up and then we open our phone and then up, we're checking our email and then we're checking social media and then we're scrolling and Googling this thing that you know we've needed to find out the answer to. And so checking the time on our phones turns into a 10 minute scroll fest. And if we add up all the 10 minute scroll fests <laughs> that we have in our 168 hour weeks, that can add up to a decent chunk of what would be white space. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely.
1: I think, to to your point, if we're using the phone for the time, it may lead us down a rabbit hole. And multiple rabbit holes add up. I think social media is valuable for many reasons, and connecting with friends is valuable, so vital for our well-being. And yet, I think it's important to have boundaries on how much time we put on the screen so that we can hopefully refocus and put our attention on the people in front of us or ourselves
0: all right so we're eating our frogs we're being more intentional with our scheduling of our time and now we're moving on to pearl of wisdom number three which is to not let perfect be the enemy of the good i'll be honest we've all heard the quote i've heard the quote before
1: what on earth does this quote mean this is a quotation that is attributed to Voltaire who's a who's a French philosopher in the 1700s and this quotation I do not have hanging on my office wall because as a recovering perfectionist in patient care this is the one area that I still strive for as close to perfection as humanly possible. That being said in my non-clinical responsibilities As a recovering perfectionist, I try to be more now of a satisficer. In other words, if there is a task or a project, I'll try to think in advance, set criteria for this project, and the bar can be quite high, right? But once these criteria are met, I'm satisfied. I'm done. For example, thinking about 168 hours, there is time. Doesn't happen every week, but I do have time on my calendar to take two to three hours a week to go out on a date night with my husband because that's just a drop in the bucket of the 62 hours after work and sleep. Say I'm looking for a restaurant for that date night with my husband. I might set the criteria on a Mexican restaurant with a good happy hour within a mile radius. And once I hit those criteria satisfied, I try to book the reservation, an open table or resi, whatever, and then I'm done. I try to remind myself not to keep endlessly scrolling around for that perfect restaurant because that perfect restaurant doesn't exist. And I think this it's helpful as professional working mothers to remind ourselves that perfection is not humanly attainable because striving for something that's not attainable can contribute to feelings of anxiety and depression. And that's not what we're for.
0: That restaurant example you gave actually speaks to me because the amount of times that my husband and I have the opportunity to get childcare to go out to eat it's those opportunities are not falling from trees let's put it like that um however when the opportunities come i do feel like sometimes we get stuck in a loop let's say of trying to find the perfect place because we don't get to do this that often. And so we want to make it magical and wonderful. And so I understand how in that situation, just getting out the door, (laughs) going to the restaurant that you both agree on, somewhat close to home, has good chips and salsa. That's good enough, right? Good enough. But what would you say, though, in instances in which there is an element of I'm trying to think of what the word is in a, in more of a work situation or in a situation in which you're being held accountable. How does this rule not letting perfection being the enemy of good work in those instances?
1: Yeah, it's such a good question. You know, I think it, for people with perfectionistic tendencies it can be very hard because it, including this professional sphere, is there some sort of lower stakes setting in which you could try to lower your standards just a little bit? And see what, if any, there consequences there are. For example, I had the experience where a superior of mine asked me for some slides about screening mammography because this is an area that I have expertise in. And in the past, I might have taken I don't know how long just futzing around with the slides and making sure the fun was exactly right and this was lined up this way and th- is that the highest and best use of anybody's time? No, I can instead look at what she's requesting, set, make sure I meet those criteria, and set an alarm, and when the alarm goes off and I bet the criteria, I spell check the document and send it to her. And this is what I did in real life. And 15 minutes later, I got an email back. Great, this is perfect, sick. And I would have otherwise been still working on this. And this is time that I could otherwise put to sitting with a patient who I'm giving a difficult diagnosis to and just listening. This is a much, much better use of my time than aligning my fonts or getting my pictures just right.
0: You did mention that you're a recovering perfectionist. How did you recover? How did you get there? Do you have any tips for the perfectionist listening? You know, I think, um, I think with each child I
1: had and each additional responsibility, That, that responsibilities that brought on, I became increasingly interested in time management and organization. And I really saw finally with children, it really drove home the point for me that everything is an opportunity cost, right? Everything is a trade off. I could no longer study endlessly for my boards to become a board certified radiologist because I had a child I also had to take care of. And I think when those most primary and important responsibilities come, head to head, you come to realize that you have to do the best you can and that there's not endless time. And we just do the best work we can. And we try to learn from our mistakes, and those of others and be as self aware as possible and just try to do the best we can as human beings. Because perfection is not humanly attainable and take care of everything you need to take care of everything takes time and everything's a trade-off, for better or for worse.
0: Well, Elizabeth, we need to take our quick ad break. But when we come back, we're going to talk about your pearl as it relates to over-apologizing. We'll get there in a minute. Hello, Sustainable Minimalist listeners. Are you committed to living a greener and simpler life? Well, meet home Threads, your ally in more sustainable and minimalist home decor. As the total destination for decor and furniture, home Threads helps you define your minimalist lifestyle while respecting the planet. Discover their exclusive Haven Collection And we're back. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Kagan Arleo. She is the author of First, Eat Your Frog and Other Pearls for Professional Working Mothers. Before the break, we talked about three of her pearls. Eat your frog first. Prioritize your time by looking at your time, not in a 24-hour Time frame, but in terms of the week, 168 hours. And of course, don't let perfection be the enemy of good. Elizabeth, now we need to talk about over-apologizing. We women do it, we do it often. Talk to me about it.
1: So I first heard this as advice from the former chair of radiology at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And she came in and gave a talk to the women in radiology group I had started at Cornell, and she said she'd been a chair for a number of years, and she she noticed that women would come into her office and ask for things, a raise, more flexibility, more last face, whatever. Men and women would come in and make these requests, but women would start by apologizing often for no apparent reason. And she defined over apologizing as apologizing not only too frequently, but when it's not indicated. And Once she brought this to my attention, just for the rest of the day, as an exercise, just listen to yourself and those around you, particularly girls and women, and hear how often we say I'm sorry, and is it really indicated? And I think this stop over apologizing is so important for girls and women, for working women, because whereas... Uh, being able to admit that you're wrong and apologize where it's indicated is obviously a real interpersonal skill. Over apologizing can present itself as weakness, both personally and professionally. And in a professional setting can set up the person you're asking something for to prime them to say no. So I think it can be really detrimental. And this has been something that I, again, a work in progress. And I have three daughters and I, have enlisted them for accountability. If you hear me apologizing when you think it's not indicated, I want you to call me on it because I don't want to do it for myself. And I certainly don't want to model it for the next generation.
0: Certainly not. Why do we do this? As you're talking, I'm thinking about how I often start an ask. like If I'm asking for something, something small, I don't know. I had me a glass. I'm sorry, but would you mind grabbing me a glass? Like, why do I do that? Why do we do that? Do you have any thoughts? The more you listen to yourself, the more self-awareness I have, you. I think the
1: more everyone will, or many people will hear themselves doing it. I think there's a component of psychology involved there for sure. There's probably also differences, cultural differences involved in when and what situations people apologize for. But I think for many girls and women raised in Western society and beyond, I think we're socialized not to take up too much space, to put the needs of other people first, even from a very early age. And I think it creeps in in terms of the verbiage we end up using, even as grown up women.
0: Yeah, I really need to think about this, do some introspection, because I know I do it. And just using the glass example, like, oh, could you hand me this? I often actually physically make myself smaller, like, oh, I'm sorry. And I'm actually. Not, I don't think I'm actually that meek of a person in real life. Actually, I know I'm not, so why am I doing that? That's interesting. And I also have a nine year old daughter. And if I really was to sit with this, I would realize that she is also doing this in weird ways. She does it in like a silly voice, she'll go, Saw we like that. A very nine year old thing to do, but uh, stop apologizing, over apologizing. Absolutely, there are instances that rightfully require an apology and then there's these over apologizing instances in which the word sorry <laughs> doesn't need to enter the conversation at all all right give me another lesson i love this
1: along the lines of stop over apologizing another lesson or chapter of the book is it doesn't hurt to ask politely this the two next to each other make it sound like i'm some emily post with respect to matters which is definitely not the case but this is something I actually learned from my eldest daughter. I remember she was about six years old. And I don't think I ate a lychee until I was like in my 20s. But when she was little, we had a friend from Costa Rica who introduced her to lychees and she loved her lychees. And it used to be in Manhattan. You could only get them in starting in late um, May from the fruit sellers. And so it was late May and near Sophia's birthday and we're walking along. I remember East 86th Street. She, kept asking every fruit seller excuse me do you have any lychees do you have any lychees do you have any lychees and i said sweetie i think i must be too early we're going to have to check back next week and she was insistent she said no she asked every single fruit seller i think we we're practically in the east river and finally she was rewarded with it yes how many pounds would you like and she turned to me in that little 6 year old voice and said see it doesn't hurt to ask and that experience really drove home to me, the point of it, it really doesn't hurt to ask. If you do not ask, then the answer is no. If you do ask, the answer can be no, but it could also be yes. And I think this is a very applicable lesson, not only personally, obviously, that's the setting in which I learned it, but also professionally. And yet I add on the word politely uh, in the professional setting, because I still think there's very much a catch-22 for women in the workplace. Women if you know you don't speak up about your accomplishments, you may be passed over for leadership positions or other promotions. And yet if you do speak up about them, you may be viewed as too assertive or too aggressive. And so there's this tightrope Catch-22 situation that women are trying to balance, that I think, certainly contributes to stress in the workplace. And the only way that I've seen in part to deal with this Catch-22 is to add on the word politely because it means respectful and courteous and this is something I think we all need more of in our world and it's hard to argue with asking for something in a respectful and courteous way even if the answer is no it's been done with respect and thought and and there you have it
0: i'm glad you brought up the workplace piece essentially cuz it's one thing to ask somebody in our personal life for more fruit, but it's another thing in the workplace in which you are potentially asking a thing of somebody with a higher title, perhaps your boss, perhaps then you're dealing also with the internal feelings associated with asking politely somebody who's higher up than you for something that they perhaps don't want to give. Do you have any tips there? Like what works or what has worked for you?
1: It's such a challenging uh, situation, professionally, I think, particularly for women. And certainly every woman is different and every workplace situation and woman boss dyad is, is different as well. One example that can be helpful to keep in mind is that if you're asked to do something that you would really like to do and yet you feel like you maybe don't have the bandwidth You know, can be a first reaction just to feel overwhelmed and, oh my God, and I don't know what to do. Most of the times things are not an emergency and you can respectfully thank your superior for the opportunity and invitation and ask if, would it be okay if you took, I don't know, X amount of time, whatever that is, given the situation, to think about the situation and the opportunity or the ask. And then when the pressure is off on your own time, really take stock of what's important to you, what you want to do. What you have on your plate, and maybe think about what would make it worthwhile for me to say yes to this ask. And then think of it as a ebb and flow and negotiation. They want me to do this. I'd like to do this, but then as a reasonable to get rid of something else. So I think thinking about it as a two way dialogue and thinking about what the other person is looking for and trying to put yourself in the other person's shoes can be very helpful in an effective negotiation. That being said, there are books and courses that go on and on about this. So <laughs> that's just tip of the
0: iceberg. All right, Elizabeth, we have time for one more of your pearls of wisdom. And I am I have a lot to think about once we say goodbye. So give me one more.
1: <laughs> I would say just awareness of um, imposter syndrome and um, imposter syndrome, not an official like diagnosis, a medical diagnosis was defined by psychologists in the 1970s particularly occurring in high, achiever, high achievers who are unable to internalize and accept their success. And I bring this up because it may circle back to what we're talking about in terms of over-apologizing or having difficulty asking for what you want. And in imposter syndrome, women, particularly women, tend to suffer with this in silence. And that's why I want to raise the issue of imposter syndrome. They attribute their accomplishments to luck instead of ability they fear that they may be unmasked somehow as a fraud. And it's like a very real and specific form of intellectual self-doubt. And it occurs across different fields. Michelle Obama talks about imposter syndrome in her book, Becoming. Natalie Portman, Academy Award winner, has talked about imposter syndrome when she was an undergrad at Harvard. And even Sheryl Sandberg has talked about imposter syndrome. So I think it's important to raise that imposter syndrome may be something that high-achieving professional women may come across during some part of their career. I think it's important to name it to tame it, to be aware of it, because part of imposter syndrome is that many people may suffer in silence. And so I just want to raise this as an awareness that people have heard of the, the syndrome, at least.
0: I hear your point there, name it to tame it. Is it as simple as naming it and then it's tamed? Or are there any like next steps that you can offer?
1: I wish it was as easier as you name it to Damon, but I do think that's a first start. And that's what I wanted to bring up here. Just the that it, the individual experience you may be hearing, if you're listening to this, it, you're not alone, that there are many people who have experienced it. When I was president of the American Association for Women in Radiology in 2019, I convened a multidisciplinary panel about tackling imposter syndrome to, again, bring it to the forefront and raise awareness of it. And one of the interventional radiologists who was on the panel, Dr. Salazar, she had come up with the five, five R's for dealing with imposter syndrome. The five R's, courtesy of Dr. Salazar, are, number one, recognize, which is the name it, uh, to tame it. Two, having rational thinking. Is there really evidence, look to evidence to the contrary, for example, that you really are qualified to be doing what you're doing, Three, reframe, as in have a positive mental attitude, a positive reframe on the situation. Four, be ready to keep your eyes on the prize and go for whatever you'd like to go for that maybe you're having intellectual self-doubt about. And number five is repeat, because to your point earlier, it's not just name entertainment and it's gone. But um, as we've seen with Michelle Obama and, and others, and uh, Natalie Portman and Sheryl Sandberg, these women have had long, successful, ongoing careers, and it can be very persistent despite ongoing success.
0: Mm. I think for me, too, when it comes to imposter syndrome, realizing that It's quite pervasive, and even the people in my life, in my professional spheres, who I would think would never have imposter syndrome, (laughs) look at them. They may be also suffering and struggling with it as well. And so if we're thinking about this silent struggle that so many of us are facing, Perhaps many of the people we look up to are also struggling with it. It takes the weight off of it when I feel it personally. Elizabeth, what pearls of wisdom today? Let's talk about your book, First Eat Your Frog and Other Pearls for Professional Working Mothers. What's in it that we didn't cover today and where can we find it?
1: Absolutely. I hope some of what we did talk about today resonated with those who are listening. If it did, you can check out additional pearls in the book. There are a total of eight there. Books available, as always, on bookshop.org to support your smaller local booksellers. And I had the great pleasure of narrating the book as well. So you can listen to it on audible format, if you want to pair it with commuting or exercising or whatever else you are doing as a busy professional. Thank you.
0: Thank you. This was such an enlightening conversation. I wish you so much success. Thank you for giving me a little bit of your white space today. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much and all the best to you.
0: Listeners, that's a wrap. My friends, show notes are at mamaminimalist.com forward slash four, three, five. And I just want to say that If you listen to my episode on stepping away from Amazon, this show is also stepping away from Amazon. From now on, whenever I link to a book, so I have an author on and I'm linking in the resources mentioned section of the show notes to the book, I will no longer be linking to Amazon. So that's a little way that I'm living what I preach, practicing what I preach. And so I absolutely suggest you, if you're interested in buying this book or other books you hear about on the show... Buy them from your favorite local bookstore or perhaps indie books. Those are some options for you. We will be back on Thursday. I will see you then. As always, you know where to find me and take care.